Hello, I'm Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'd like to urge you all to give the gift of great writing this Christmas. The Spectator has a special Yuletide offer for Americano listeners. For $52, that's just $1 a week, you'll get a full subscription to The Spectator, which includes a beautiful monthly 88-page magazine and full access to our brilliant American website. We'll even throw in a free Parker pen so you can get scribbling yourself. Just go to spectator.us forward slash Christmas and subscribe. Have a very, very Merry Christmas from everyone at The Spectator. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics. The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by Douglas Murray, who is associate editor of The Spectator and author of the best-selling blockbuster, The Madness of Crowds, uh, which continues to sell disgustingly well. Douglas, thank you very much for being with us. It's a great pleasure, Freddie. I want to do a sort of bit of a year in review with you today, if that's possible. It's been a pretty good year, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, it's not had any shortage of stories in it. No, 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 no shortage there. I think, I think for me, the overwhelming story of the year is obviously COVID. But the story that people aren't talking about enough in relation to it is China and COVID. You recently wrote a, an excellent piece for The Spectator, making a point that um, I feel should be discussed more, uh, which is whether we should be demanding reparations from China. We being, I suppose, the West, the Western world, should be demanding reparations from China if they continue to not allow uh, an inv investigation into the origins of the virus, if they continue to behave in the way that they have. We should consider serious sanctions, serious actions against it. This seems to be a very controversial thing to say. Do you know why? Uh, yes, because it's so obvious. And quite often, in my experience, the obvious things are on everybody's mind and nobody dares to say them. I think there's another reason, which is that governments and many, frankly, many media corporations and others are terrified of Chinese economic might. And they don't want to piss off China. The Chinese Communist Party has enormous capabilities for investment and, uh, and divestment of their of their investments. They have enormous uh, financial clout, investment clout. And I think for that reason, among many others, people have been wary of saying the obvious, which is uh, whatever the origins of this virus, the Chinese Communist Party knew about it and knew the danger of it before they bothered to tell anyone else. Most infamously, they shut down internal flights within China whilst permitting flights to still be leaving China and taking people with the virus out to the rest of the world. We have another thing, of course, which is a sort of elementary thing, but it was, it was there at the beginning and it's there still now, which was the stupid sort of 
late game of the era before the era got as serious as it now has, where everybody was interested primarily and principally on whether or not people were giving out dog whistles, you know, all this sort of thing. Were, were, were people saying words that were slightly wrong, which unemployable people could rail against? And so at the beginning of the virus, we had people endlessly wondering whether or not it was racist to mention it had come from China. And I think that there is a significant element of that that stayed in this throughout. People who, who found it déclassé, to say the least, and racist, to say the most, when Donald Trump repeatedly referred to the China virus or the virus from Wuhan and so on, as if as if that just wasn't acceptable language. It wasn't acceptable to identify it as coming from China. That was racist. That wasn't a theoretical thing, remember. As the virus was already uh, spreading across the world, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, asked people to go to Chinatown in her local area to show that they were anti-racist. The mayor of Florence urged the people of Florence to not only go to the local Chinatown, but he asked them to find and hug Chinese people in Florence to simultaneously combat, I think, um, uh, something and also racism. Uh, So all the people... All the people who followed his advice and, and hugged a Chinese person uh, in uh, February, perhaps the mayor of Florence one day will take some responsibility for that. But the point is that that was what was going on at the beginning. It's still going on now. And you can see, by the way, how ludicrous it is and how transparent it is by what has happened in recent days. And that is that a new strain of the virus has allegedly been found in the UK the UK authorities did what any authorities ought to do in that situation and alerted everybody to the existence of this apparent new strain. And the world reacted in the way that it would. Uh, the French press, as you know, uh, ran you know headlines on the, um, the virus anglaise. It was no problem, people saying, the British virus. So it appears to be the rule that so long as a virus comes from any Western country, uh, and there were people at the beginning trying to pretend to call it the Italian virus, uh, the coronavirus, uh, so as long as it comes from any Western country, you can identify that. But if it comes from China, you shouldn't, because that would be racist. And it appears to be, among other things, because these nincompoops have got an extraordinarily outdated perception of what it is to punch up and punch down. They think that to identify a virus as having come from China is to punch down. They seem not to have seen how well China has been doing in recent years economically and that it isn't a cringing uh, minority of a country. It's a country that's so strong that it is the only country leaving 2020 with economic growth of 1.8%, it claims. And it's a country which feels perfectly fine with threatening It's not just critics, but people who ask for investigation into it. It's a country whose authorities were fine with threatening the Australians when the Australian authorities had the audacity to say that it could be a good thing if the international community had an independent inquiry to find out how coronavirus had come about. That alone caused the communist Chinese authorities to call for sanctions and much more against Australia. So... It isn't the case that the CCP is a sort of cringing minority who we have to feel sorry for and have to protect the feelings of. It isn't that at all. It's an international bully boy that gave the world 2020. And as I say in the Spectator piece, 
I'd like the world to ask for some money back. Well, I, I think I agree. I, I wonder to what extent do you think the Chinese are aware of the fact, or the, the Chinese government, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party, are aware of the fact that political correctness or wokeness or, or what you're describing there is paralysing to us. Um, mm. It means that we can't engage in diplomacy in, in an effective way. Um, mm. And to what extent do you think they are trying to seed the divisions that identity politics causes in our societies? Or is that paranoid talk on my part? No, I think that's, that's completely reasonable. Um, China acts in a way that world powers um, have tended to act until uh, the latter part of the 20th century, early 21st century, when it was sort of decided by significant parts of the population in America, Britain and elsewhere, that it was sort of imperialist to do anything in your own interests. And the only thing a decent country does is to act against its own interests. So, so, so this had become a sort of presumption in the West. And of course, the Chinese Communist Party and others are very, very eager to take advantage of that. Uh, we've seen, you know, this is, it's the same thing with uh, uh, elements of the Russian state, which are happy to play on Western fears and um, legit, often very legitimate fears. By the way, I should mention that if anyone listening wants to know more about the CCP and exactly what it's been doing. There's a book that was released this year, which I can't recommend enough, called Hidden Hand, uh, exposing how the Chinese Communist Party is reshaping the world. It's an excellent and scholarly, deeply, deeply troubling work uh, written by Clive Hamilton and Marie Olberg. Uh, Hidden Hand, it's an absolutely eye-opening book uh, for anyone who's been wondering what it is that's been going on with China this year. I think that 2020 will be seen as the year when the West uh, woke up to the threat that China had been posing for years. And in that one respect alone, there'll be something good to come out of this year. Well, we, we keep hearing that the West has woken up. But I mean, a figure who was alert to the, the threat of China was, was Donald Trump. People can argue about how effective he was at dealing with it. I suppose the, the broader evidence suggests not very. But we now have Joe Biden coming in and without wanting to go all Beijing, Joe, I think it's fair to say you will not have a figure who, is, who, who has a track record of standing up to China being the next leader of the free world. And in, yeah. uh, in London, in Westminster... Uh, you hear a lot that, you know, we finally realised that China's not a good actor uh, and we're going to get tough with them. Uh, but whenever I hear that in Westminster, I slight, alarm bells slightly ring. And I just wonder whether, I mean, perhaps there is a, a bigger problem, which is that China is now so economically powerful and important that we cannot, I mean, reparations, for instance, might cause... Uh, a crashing of the world economy that would harm China less than it would us. Yes, it's possible. That's why I say that I'm open to any and all suggestions, tariffs, punitive economic measures, whatever. I, I simply also think that it's uh, worth people reflecting after this year on how it is that we can try to disentangle ourselves as much as possible from the Chinese behemoth. I think that this is a very, very tricky, tricky thing indeed, 
not to go all Cold War two on everyone, but you know, at least in the Cold War, we didn't have to untangle our financial interests from the Eastern Bloc. We didn't have any financial interests in, in common with them. In in a way, what we see now is the complexity of a, a form of disentanglement, or at least stepping away at a point when China is already involved in, I mean, as we saw this year, of course, reminded of the complexity of getting China out of the 5G network building it had been involved in, getting China out of, for instance, nuclear infrastructure, getting it out of all of these things, let alone the economic structures, uh, uh, is is exceptionally complex. Uh, I would have thought that the first thing is, the most obvious thing is, is, is to say, don't go in any further. Donald Trump did realise this. It was one of the very important central insights uh, that he did have, and which even his critics should recognise. He was on to China very early, comparatively early. He saw them as a competitor, rightly. He saw that they, they were a challenge to American power, which they, they are. And that is, I think, one reason why Americans, uh, the American public, I mean, you and I have both spent significant amounts of time there this year, as I think you'd agree that the American public are far more um, knowledgeable about the the scale of the China challenge than the, than their British counterparts. Uh, British yeah. people people quite often like to think that, that, that there's something innately more developed or intelligent in the British psyche than there is in the American one. Certainly not so. And certainly not so in the case of China, where the American public, I think, are, are far more aware of the challenge that the country poses. Perhaps that's just a question of um, extent of decline. I mean, without wanting to sound too self-hating and British about it, I, I mean, America is a superpower that is whose primacy is being challenged by China. Uh, yes. we, are far down, <laughs> we are far down the pecking order. Yes. Well, I mean, as the fifth largest economy in the world, we still should be interested in having a say in this. But I agree to some extent, if you're number one, and you're trying to battle to remain number one, and you don't want number two to become number one, then yes, it's it's a bigger issue. However, those people in Western, and by, and by the way, it's, it's worth remembering, we have had appalling politicians in recent years, primarily it ought to shamefully be admitted conservative politicians in the UK, who viewed the rise of China not just with equanimity, but with beady eyes, uh, seeing the opportunity for their own economic self-advancement. Uh, these people, I think, will be judged very badly by history. I very much hope so. I anticipate it being the case. But these people, of course, have tried to, and they are some very powerful people, have tried to shut down a lot of this debate, have tried to, to play down the Chinese Communist Party iniquities. And I think that one of the results of this has been that they have effectively tried to placate the British people about this. I simply think that one of the tasks that will be necessary is to say, among other things, that were we to arrive at a stage where China was to replace America as the world's hegemon, it would not be something that would simply be number two replacing number one in the global pecking order and economy number five being able to view with equanimity the yeah. shift around from number two to number one and the, that switch around. It's not like an economy like Britain could just view that like a dozy doe at a dance that didn't involve us and we would get on with our business. It wouldn't at all. The moment that the world order was even more significantly dictated to by China than it is today, yeah. uh, everything changes. Everything changes. All the legal mechanisms in the international community change. 
everything changes. We saw a little glimpse of that this year when people finally started to realise the extent to which international organisations like the World Health Organisation had already been corrupted and co-opted by Beijing. We would be seeing that on an even more significant scale. So it's, I agree with you that it is, it is a, um, a consequence of not being the top player that means that people can, can, can think they can afford not to view this as the issue. But actually, were the top players to change around, it would be very much our business. What well, one person who realised this uh, very clearly and and well was um, Mike Pompeo, the now outgoing Secretary of State in America, and I think he did more than anyone in the Trump administration to sort of alert other powers to the global challenge that China poses. Do you think he and the Trump administration did enough to? turn the ship around so that however different the Biden administration is, US policy now is in a different place vis-a-vis China to what it was and, and the direction it was going before the, uh, the Trump administration. You're right. I think an enormous amount of credit should go to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. As you know, I, I interviewed him on his trip to London uh, in the summer when he uh, came, among other things, to um I urge the UK authorities to a clearer line on, among other things, 5G, Huawei, TikTok and and much more. The Secretary of State Pompeo deserves a huge amount of credit for this. He was uh, not just ahead on this, but warning people about this at a time when too many people were uh, basically supine on the whole issue. I I think that I, I wouldn't expect uh, the trade wars to outlast the Trump administration. I think that I'd be very surprised if Biden-Harris were able to keep that up or in any way renew that. I think what we will see happen is that there will be a, a, a lessening of the tension from the Washington side, which I think is a mistake. But I think that publicly in America, there will have been enormously growing awareness, principally because of what has come from Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo. There'll be an enormously grown awareness of the fact that China has to be dealt with more toughly by Washington. I think that that will remain a public mood. I think it could be a growing mood. And I think to some extent, Biden-Harris will not be able to get away with the sort of return to business as normal that they might have hoped to have been able to do earlier this year. Well, one th- that leads me on to uh, another piece that you uh, wrote, the, the, your latest piece for um, the Spectator's US edition, which we've headlined, The Unbearable Smugness of the Never Trumpers. And that points to an interesting development, I'd say, in recent weeks, which is that a lot of the people who were most wrong throughout the Trump administration, who kind of invested the most in Russiagate that turned out to be uh, a complete load of rubbish, uh, who objected to the standing up to China that we saw from Pompeo and the Trump administration. They are now cock-a-hoop because Trump, in their eyes, has been revealed to be a sort of want-to-be dictator uh, because he's trying to overturn the election and that their man, Joe Biden, has won. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's an awkward position uh, for them to be in. I, 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 many of the people who have been in the Never Trumper camp are friends 
and ex-friends of mine, uh, certainly allies and ex-allies, many people who were in the foreign policy establishment in the George W. Bush years, who formed a centerpiece of foreign policy thinking um, going back some decades uh, on the right in America, saw the rise of Trump and, of course, unified, as I say in the piece, unified to say we will not work with him. And it was it was more than um, simply campaigning against him. It was, it, was, it was several statements, one signed by 120 or so foreign policy professionals, saying that they would uh, make sure that not only did they campaign against him, but in no situation would take up jobs in administration. I say in the piece there were several problems that happened from the start with this. One was that I think they these people overestimated their own uh, likability, to put it no stronger, uh, that the American public wasn't wild about foreign policy professionals by 2016, not least because American foreign policy seemed to have relied on starting a set of wars that America couldn't finish against yeah. uh, rag, often ragtag armies and militia groups. And uh, I think that many American voters saw an appeal in Trump precisely because he did argue for and indeed ended up seeing through a totally different shift and approach in American foreign policy terms. But the Never Trumpers, yes, from the beginning said they would have a non-cooperation pact. And in some ways, as I say in the piece, it, this is understandable because they believed, and this wasn't a wildly off belief, that that uh, as Neil Ferguson, who had a much more nuanced and informed view on this, put it very early on, he said there was a risk that, that everyone knew that Donald Trump was going to leave office in a scandal that would make Richard Nixon's retirement from office look uh, like a sort of genteel affair. And that was, I think, what everyone was expecting. That was one of the reasons why the Never Trumpers were so big on Russiagate. This would be the ultimate vindication of their non-cooperation pact. But as I say in the piece, there will always be a lingering question over this. Not just uh, in the coming years as the Never Trumpers realise that they effectively ended up helping into office uh, in a small way. I don't think it's necessary to overemphasise this in any sense. But in a small way helped into office an administration that will, in foreign policy terms, be opposed to everything that they themselves campaigned for. Uh, the yeah. Biden administration will almost certainly take America back into the P5 plus one Iran nuclear deal. Uh, they will almost certainly return to the status quo um, failed status quo vision of Middle East peace. They will return to the, the status quo ante on all of these issues and more. Uh, uh, this will, of course, be very interesting to watch in the coming years, whether people are as, whether the Never Trumpers are as pleased as all that by what they've helped to happen. But a more important question, which, as I say, will be lingering always, should linger in their minds, is is the case of those people, and there were some, Elliot Abrams is the most obvious example, who started off as never-Trumpers and then ended up working in the administration, in the case of Abrams as Venezuela envoy and then Iran uh, um, envoy. Uh, a very, very interesting case of an absolutely um, key, perhaps under uh, recognised publicly figure in some of the most successful moves in foreign policy that America's made in recent decades, a quiet, unassuming, hard-working public servant who, a couple of years into the Trump administration, went into the administration and did significant good during that time. This, I think, should be a sort of 
uh, just a slightly haunting thought for those people is what if they had actually decided to make their peace with the fact that there was a Republican president in the White House, that he was finding it hard to appoint people, that there were a lot of gaps in administration. Uh, maybe there could have been some other route. Now, the obvious thing that people will say to that would be, well, look at some of the people who did go in. Look at John Bolton and the unhappy time he spent working with and for Trump. So it will never be a straightforward uh, calculation. It'll never be a, a straightforward um, history. But I think it's a very interesting question, which will continue to, to resound for some years. The question of, 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 of whether or not there are people you simply shouldn't work for, or whether you should put your country ahead of even that, uh, or indeed whether, you, whether that's the calibration you make. It's a complex one. I suppose it, asks, it's an interest, asks, it poses some interesting questions about uh, what, what is often called neoconservatism. And, mm. I mean, it seems to me there's a sort of... Trump has caused a sort of split among neoconservatives. I, I think... I mean, you used to call yourself a neoconservative. I don't know if you... I wrote, wrote the book on it. On it you yeah. wrote a book on it, yeah. And I suppose it's, it's caused a, a slight division between, let's call them sort of hard-headed or realist neocons... Um, like uh, I'd say Pompeo perhaps falls into this school, Elliot Abrams certainly would, people who accommodated with Trumpism because of the things that they agreed with, like uh, the standing up to China. And then the sort of other wing of, let's call them democratic neoconservatives, who I think are much more comfortable really in the Democratic Party because um, mm. not just because they found Trump so individually loathsome, they actually disagreed with the standing up to China. They were worried that that was Sinophobic. They're much more comfortable talking about Russia. And it's sort of perhaps done the right a favour in that respect, in that the strange hybrid that had been formed of quite democratic people with quite um, sort of hard realist people, I suppose, on foreign policy, has been broken up. It could have done. You're right, I don't use the term anymore. I find the, the whole term neoconservative to be almost unusable. But yes, I think you're right. Of course, it's not just uh, it makes some sense, but it, it, it has a certain um, pattern and logic to it. As you know, the, the, the first generation of so-called neoconservatives, people like Irving Kristol, Norman Paul Horowitz, Daniel Bell, these were people primarily interested in domestic policy rather than foreign policy, but who did migrate from the Democratic Party towards the Republican Party. Yes, and even the hard left of the party. Exactly. And uh, in the 60s and 70s, in particular when this went on, it was a very interesting and important intellectual shift in America. Perhaps the, um, the Trump era has, has shifted uh, the descendants, sometimes literally, of those people back. Perhaps it has, it has, it has as you said, caused a sort of reverse effect of some people leaving the Republican to go back to the Democrats. It could be. I'm not um, misty-eyed about any of this or dewy-eyed about it, and um, I see nothing particularly to lament. Yes. I wonder if you think that there is a similar um, intellectual movement, to jump subjects a little bit, but uh, a similar intellectual movement to happening now to what happened with neoconservatism back in the day, um, which is more, but less perhaps a movement from left to right, and more perhaps a movement to, from sort of liberalism to anti-wokery. Let's call it. I mean, it's often identified as the intellectual dark web. 
you're often identified as a figure within it. Uh, but there certainly is a movement at the moment. It's a popular one. Um, it's certainly a viral one. Uh, we can see from our internet traffic on spectator pieces for a sort of liberal, a very liberal sometimes war against the intolerant progressivism that we exist with today. Yes, it's early days in that. I think that it's, it seems obvious to me that since there are quite a lot of apostate members of the left who've realised how appalling the left has become, that they might uh, be migrating. There's an important thing to mention on this, by the way, which which, which the spectator has been a uh, significant organ in, which is this. Look at the left-wing press and the people who have been fired from it or effectively excommunicated from it in recent years. The ones who write really well end up writing for the spectator, among other venues. But perhaps most importantly, they find themselves given a home in the pages of Spectator. There are several things that are worth noting about this. The first is that were were this to happen the other way around, the favour would not be returned. Yeah. I see it as being unlikely that if Freddie Gray or Douglas Murray wrote something that was deemed abhorrent by the readers of The Spectator, that we would be scooped up by The Guardian to write for us. I've got some hopes I I cling on to Hold out for that check Uh, I I wouldn't tell the bank promise the bank it was coming but the point is, I say this as a preliminary to the the main point which is that one of the oddities of this though is that the people who are effectively made apostates of the left never seem to have, I, I want to be careful about the wording of this but they never seem to have the courage to follow their thoughts and discoveries through to the logical conclusion they should follow them to. Yeah. In a previous generation, uh, these people would have said, that's it, I'm, I'm giving up on it, I'm off. It, it, there's an oddity about this generation of leftists who even the ones who have become most reviled, they don't realise that the problem is the movement that they have been a part of. The problem is a dragon they were perfectly willing to feed until it ate them. And now the obvious thing is they they say when I, when I say this to them, but I am of the left. And I simply think that there, there's a lack of, there's a lack of follow through that is very interesting. And I think in part it's because these people misunderstand what they think the right is. Uh, for instance, they say, well, but I'm on the left still. And I say, well, what is it to be on the left? And they say, I'm for workers' rights. Think, what, well, you think the right isn't? <laughs> uh, you, you think, that, I mean, I mean you know, it's a simplistic analysis that they hold on to in order to continue to be able to, to claim that they are on the left still. But I find yeah. this, I find this all a very telling moment. At some point, if you don't have any journals to write in that aren't right wing, if all of the people who've been most prominent in supporting you are of the right and much more, maybe the left is the problem. Now, as I say, I understand why people have affiliations and fondnesses and so on. And I don't think the left per se is the problem. But the left in the manifestation that it's got now, um, I would not want to hang around with it if I was of that tribe. And you don't need to say I'm on the right. But but I think to not credit the fact 
that it is now, it has now become the case that it is conservatives and right-wing journals, institutions and people who are most visibly on the side of a plurality of opinion should be something that should make apostate leftists think more. Well, one possible interesting apostate this year has been J.K. Rowling, who, of course, is exactly the sort of person you've described because she was someone who fed into the movement, the tendency to cancel people. Literally fed Kevin Myers to the dragon. Literally, she, she, she threw him to the cancelled dragons. And there was an interesting letter, you'll remember it, in Harper's, which was signed by quite a large number of, uh, let's call them liberal, left liberal people. Harper's is a, is a magazine of the American left. And I found it very odd that to make this clear point that they supported the right of people like J.K. Rowling to say what she wanted to say about trans rights and so on, they had to sort of clear their throat for about three or four paragraphs in which they made it very, very clear that they hated Donald Trump, just in case anybody thought otherwise. And that speaks to what you're talking about, which is this sort of... They create this sort of bogeyman to justify the fact that they're disagreeing with people who they see as part of their tribe. Yes, I I was surprised that the signatories of the Harper's letter didn't have to also condemn Richard Spencer the world's most famous obscure person. <laughs> yeah. To um, be clear, we're not aligning ourselves with... Yes, we don't align ourselves with neo-Nazism or fascism. We are, in fact, anti-fascists, you know, that sort of thing. It, yes, uh, uh, again, it points to a, a problem on their own side, which is that people seem to think that... And I, but I'm, I'm sure you get this, as I do a little bit on the right as well. Say something... Um, negative about uh, a leftist, and people say, "I suppose, I suppose you love Donald Trump." No, uh, even if even if you say something that Donald Trump has done, which is sensible, or indeed, oh, I see, you just love everything he does, and you won't take any criticism from him. This is the sort of stupidity of our age that everyone needs to wade through. But the left seems yeah. seems to have been caught in particular on this, and you know that. The game has been rigged by people who've made it rigged to suit themselves so that they can try to pretend that if you're not on their side, you support Donald Trump or you support fascists. And and, and I, I think it's simply time that grown-ups of right, left and any other part of the spectrum united in saying, no, we're more grown-up than that. We don't live in 1939, uh, nothing like it. You're hysterical kids. That would be what would be yeah. useful for people to say in larger numbers. And I wonder, lastly, looking ahead, looking ahead to 2021, I wonder if you think that there will be a, the realignment on the right that we've discussed a lot in the last few years. I wonder if you think that that will continue. Will it be accelerated by a Biden presidency? I'm not sure. We'll see. Um, I, I'm against all predictions, given the fact that if we were speaking last year at this time, I think we probably were, none of us saw 2020 as being the year it turned out to be. I think there's a certain humility needed in all human prediction. Uh, I think there's certainly a a way in which that's possible. I think it's made more complex by the fact that in Britain and Europe, Democrat presidents are always much more popular than Republican presidents. So there could be a kind of reunifying that occurs on the right in America. 
I'm not sure it'll occur in the same way on the right in Europe or Britain. And I think there is the enormous added complexity of the fact that we are all going to be trying to scramble our way out of an economic doldrum, which is quite terrifying to look at. We have all, apart from, as we started off saying, China, we've all, apart from China, seen our GDPs crash and a fallen output in the UK that's larger than we've seen in 300 years. And at the same time, a massive rocketing in government borrowing. This is a very serious situation we go into. Would this spark or help spark a reunification on any political side? I don't know. It could be It could be that. We could see a fracturing. We could see some reorganising. It's, um, it's impossible to say. All we know is in 2021, we've got trouble ahead. Well, on that cheery note, uh, I think we'll end it. Douglas, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to you too, Freddie. And thank you very much for all your wonderful pieces this year. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.